Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast. This episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Built Bar is a protein bar that tastes just like a candy bar. Go to builtbar.com and use promo code Locked On. That's one word, Locked On, and you'll get ten dollars off of your first order. So I'll be honest, I did not sleep well last night, and that might sound a bit dramatic, but everything that went on with baseball yesterday led by Mr. Rob Manfred himself, is just so hard for me to wrap my head around. How did we get to this point? And how has it become so public and such a public feud that is just embarrassing everybody involved? The owners, of course Manfred, even some of the players. It's just a bad look, through and through, just a bad look, period. But yesterday was the straw that broke the camel's back, led by Manfred himself again. Yesterday was where Rob Manfred lost any ounce of credibility he may have had left. Five days ago, I believe it was, he comes out and says, I'm 100% sure we'll be playing a major league season in 2020. Then yesterday comes out and says, I'm not confident that we're going to be playing a major league season. It's more than just him going back on such a confident statement five days ago. I don't think that much has changed in the last five days for him. There's no way it has. What has happened is that this is all posturing, and Trevor Bauer pointed this out on Twitter. Rob Manfred is not a dumb guy. Actually, he's a really smart guy. And we're looking at some of the decisions that he makes as oh, he has no idea what he's doing. Rob Manfred knows exactly what he's doing, and that's part of the problem. I'll give you a little bit of a background on Rob Manfred before I get into why he knows exactly what he's doing and what his motives may be in being such a hard-nosed negotiator in these types of situations, and specifically CBAs. Manfred is from central New York, not too far from where I went to school in Syracuse. He started at LeMoyne College, which is about 15 minutes away from Syracuse, transfers to Cornell University, as we know, Ivy League, great school, gets his bachelor's in science there, and then goes to Harvard Law. Upon graduating from Harvard Law, I think he was a clerk somewhere for a judge, but then becomes a practicing attorney focusing on labor law and employment, makes sense, at Morgan Lewis, a firm in Washington, D.C., being that Rob Manfred's a smart guy, he works his way up to partner, but then around 1987, finds his way into Major League Baseball. This was interesting because Manfred really had no history in baseball, and his way into the game was his expertise in labor law and things in that regard, right? That's why Major League Baseball hired him. He, he wasn't there for anything to do with baseball. Like we said, it's a business, and everyone understands that. And you're going to have people who work on the business side of things in Major League Baseball who don't really have an interest in the actual game of baseball. That's fine. They have an interest in the business side of things and whatever their focus is. But those people aren't going to work their way to commissioner. And that's where things get very interesting. How did Rob Manfred go from labor attorney to commissioner of Major League Baseball? 
After working with Major League Baseball for several years, I am not sure what he did at the end of the 80s leading into the 1994 strike, but at the 1994 strike, that's where Manfred starts to assume a more prominent role. And he actually served as counsel, outside counsel, for the owners during the 1994 and 1995 strike. Well, that's a tad ironic that somebody that was on the owner's side in the mid-90s ends up being voted in as commissioner. And when he was voted in, that was one of the few contentious votes for Major League Baseball commissioner that we've seen in 60 years. He just edged out Tom Warner, who was the Red Sox chairman, and also beat an MLB executive vice president of business, Tim Brosnan. Warner seems like he would make sense, right? He was a baseball guy, and so was Brosnan, even though he was on the business side, had a history in the game, and worked his way into the game through his passion for baseball. He actually was a four-year player at Georgetown University and the captain of the baseball team there. So you have an executive who also graduated from Harvard in Warner, and then you have a guy who played college baseball and has an expertise in business and loves the game in Brosnan. Two people who love baseball and will definitely focus on expanding the game Not that Manfred didn't at least have the idea of expanding the game, but it clearly isn't a priority. But why would owners pick Manfred? It's clear. As he served as counsel in 1994, he's a guy that is focused on labor disputes, like I said, throughout his entire litigious career. Owners knew right away that this is going to be a guy who will help them. This will be a guy who is on their side. So before I dive deeper into Manfred and how he is on the owner's side, I'll give a quick background for those who might not be up to date with everything that's going on with these negotiations. Basically, the dispute between the players and the owners, which I will talk more about on the other side of the break, is really just all about dollars and lacking any sense because owners are scared of the uncertainty. And that's understandable, but that's what happens when you own a business. There isn't a business I guess there's maybe a couple, but there's very few businesses in America right now that aren't struggling or don't have uncertainty as a result of COVID-19. It's just what happens when you own a business. It comes with the territory. I hate to tell you, 30 billionaires, that that's what's going to happen. And you can't ask for your employees to share in the risk when they're already cutting their salaries. That's the thing. The players agreed to prorated salaries. They agreed to be paid significantly less and play less games. But for the owners, they can essentially save more money the less and less number of games that are played. That's why you're seeing these stall tactics. Players have accepted that they're not going to get their full salaries. That is something that's been more than agreed upon. And that's the problem is these players have already agreed to take a pay cut and now the owners want them to share into the risk. Is there even really that much risk, though? And that's something I'm going to talk about on the other side of the break, because the risk is entirely overstated. And Rob Manfred knows that, but he cannot admit that. And he's not going to pretend that that's the case, because his employers, being the owners, are the ones that do not want to lose money. And at the end of the day, Manfred's job is not to 
increase salaries for players. It's to increase profits for owners. And that is exactly what he's looking to do. The thing about it is there have been commissioners in the past that have not been afraid of owners, that have not been spineless, and they didn't last very long. Manfred knows how this works. Like I said earlier, he's a smart guy. He saw what happened in the 94 lockout. He saw what has happened in the past. And a perfect example would be Faye Vincent. If you don't remember him, it's probably because he was before some of our times, but some of the older baseball fans, no offense, Faye Vincent was a very brief commissioner for 1989 to 1992. He was the eighth commissioner of Major League Baseball. Another former attorney It's not that rare to see. It makes sense because, of course, you're dealing with a lot of labor disputes. That's something that's fine to be well-versed in, but that is all Rob Manfred knows. Faye Vincent was not afraid to stand up to owners, and that is why he's one of the shortest tenured commissioners that we've seen. An example of Vincent not being afraid of perhaps maybe the most powerful owner in baseball in George Steinbrenner the owner of the New York Yankees. In 1990, Vincent banned George Steinbrenner from baseball for life after Steinbrenner paid a small-time gambler and wannabe private investigator $40,000 for dirt on Dave Winfield after Winfield sued Steinbrenner for failing to pay his foundation the $300,000 guaranteed in his contract. That obviously did not sit well with any of the owners because they realized, oh crap, we're going to be held accountable. We don't have a puppet that we can control. And surprise, surprise, Vincent is voted out as commissioner and resigns. And in his farewell, his quote is an ominous indicator of what we are now seeing with Rob Manfred. And I quote, to do the job without angering an owner is impossible. I can't make all 28 of my bosses happy. People have told me I'm the last commissioner. If so, it's a sad thing. I hope they, the owners, learn this lesson before too much damage is done. Well, sorry to say, Mr. Vincent, they have not learned their lesson and damage is being done. And guess what? Right after Vincent stepped down and Bud Selig steps in, Guess who's reinstated as the owner of the Yankees in 1993, George Steinbrenner. His lifetime ban lasted all of three years. It's not a very long lifetime. On the other side of the break, I'm going to get more into the specifics of the money in baseball and why this has been a long time coming in terms of this dispute between owners and players. Now, you know it wouldn't be a Locked On Marlins podcast if I didn't tell you how much I enjoy Bilt Bars. Bilt Bars are tasty, but also healthy. It's a perfect for a health-conscious guy to lose or maintain weight while still feeling like you're having a delicious treat. They're covered in 100% chocolate. They're soft and easy to chew, unlike some of the other protein bars where I feel like I'm going to chip a tooth. My favorite flavor, personally, mint brownie. I also really like peanut butter brownie. I like brownies. Both of them, 15 and 20 grams of protein, 170 calories on the peanut butter brownie, 110 calories on the mint brownie, and both of them have less than 5 grams of sugar and 5 or less grams of net carbs. But if those two flavors don't entice you, there's 14 others. You can order online at BuiltBar.com, promo code LOCKEDON, that's one word, LOCKEDON, and you'll get $10 off your first order. 
Use the promo code LOCKEDON at BuiltBar.com for $10 off of your first order. Maintaining a car can be frustratingly expensive, especially when one thing breaks, you take it to the dealership, they fix whatever the minor problem was, you get the bill, your eyes almost pop out of your head because you can't believe how expensive it was, but you bite the bullet because, you know, what are the odds if something breaks on my car again? I'm just going to fix it. I need my car to get to work. And then what happens? Something else breaks. And you got to take it to the dealership again? No, you don't need to take it to the dealership. Don't pay 30, 50% more than you need to pay for whatever the part is. When you can go to rockauto.com and get these parts at a significant discount for virtually any part of any car that you might need. And it's super easy to navigate. I'm not the most savvy car guy, but going through the Rock Auto website, you can click on your car, the make, the year, and find what part you need, and you'll be shocked at how much cheaper it is than the dealerships or even a traditional chain storefront. Those places are going to tell you they got to order the part from somewhere else, and then you're going to have to pay a premium on that, and then you're going to pay for the labor, and just like that, you're looking at dealership prices all over again. How about you buy it at wholesale, basically, from rockauto.com and skip the middleman and save a ton of money rockauto.com let them know that locked on sent you in the where did you hear about us box so that they know you came from us it's an amazing selection reliably low prices and all the parts your car will ever need rockauto.com now back to baseball like i was saying earlier the public nature of this dispute has just made it so much worse in terms of optics From players to owners to Manfred, whether it's Blake Snell on a Twitch stream saying that he doesn't think baseball is going to happen, which is just the most 2020 thing I've ever heard. We're breaking news from Twitch streams now. uh, To Manfred saying baseball is going to happen, then five days later baseball is not going to happen. My personal favorite, though, was Bill DeWitt, the owner of the Cardinals, saying that owning a baseball team isn't profitable. That one just, just gets me every time. Because the DeWitt family bought the St. Louis Cardinals back in 1995 from Anheuser-Busch for $150 million. As you know, the team has appreciated a lot since then. How much? Well, according to Forbes, as of 2019, the team was worth $2.1 billion. So if money's really an issue... If you're worried about profits, Mr. DeWitt, you can sell the team at a $2 billion profit, and I think you should be fine, right? Uh, Beyond that, the Cardinals brought in $233 million in revenue in 2012. So let's forget the baseball isn't profitable theory or whatever DeWitt was trying to get at there. I don't really see how DeWitt thought that that could go well. And that would be something that would actually help the owner's case by saying something like that. And then just like everything has happened, how everything is just aged so incredibly poorly from the owners and Manfred's side. A couple days later, they reach a deal with Turner Sports for over a billion dollars for television rights. And you just can't even make that stuff up. You know, you're hearing, oh, yeah, baseball's not profitable. But we just signed a deal for a billion dollars that's going to be spread out amongst the owners. I'm not going to waste time explaining how baseball is profitable because I think we all agree that baseball is 
profitable. That's not a question, right? Teams appreciate by roughly 5% every year. The question is how profitable and how much does, does the revenue that each team, each owner is bringing in, how fast is that outpacing the salaries in baseball? We see a lot made of the, oh, baseball money, right? Baseball gets more money than any other sport. These players are spoiled, this and that. Maybe at the top, right? Maybe the 1%. But it's pretty indicative of what we see in this country as a whole. You don't really have much of a middle class in baseball. The middle class is gone. And that is largely due to a lot of the decisions that Rob Manfred has made. There is no incentive, or disincentive rather, to not tank in baseball, right? We've seen time and time again that teams can tank, bank on revenue sharing, which means that all of the revenues of all of the teams is thrown into a pool and then divvied up so that it keeps the game competitive, right? That was the idea. So that the Yankees, with no salary cap, the Yankees don't have an extreme advantage over a team like the Marlins because they have more money. While they still do have that advantage, the revenue sharing would somewhat even the playing field a bit, right? The thing is, is what the teams decide to do with that money is their prerogative, according to Rob Manfred. And the union the players union actually filed a grievance against a select few teams, Marlins, Rays, Pirates, a couple other teams, that they were not allocating that money to actually improving their teams and rather pocketing it. What Manfred ruled was that teams are able to invest in quote unquote winning in more ways than just product on the field, such as player development international free agents, this and that, maybe scouting. But you can also look at that too, Manfred. Like you can confirm if that money that they are getting from revenue sharing is going into those departments. That was a cop-out answer that said, I don't really want to investigate this. Owners can pocket the money if they want to. Because again, Manfred's job is not to increase player salaries. It's to increase owner profits. That has become more than evident through several of Manfred's other decisions that I'll get to later. But I want to talk about how this entire dispute was a long time coming. The COVID situation just brought it to light sooner than it would have come up otherwise. And the reason is that players are starting to see what Manfred actually stands for, right? How he represents the owners rather than the players and how it's backed up by just blatant stats. As the teams continue to appreciate at the rates I've told you, and revenue has tripled since 2000, salaries have not even doubled, minimum salaries, that is. Meaning that while you're seeing the Bryce Harper contracts come to fruition and those massive deals for players, the minimum salaries have not kept up with the growth of baseball financially. Why is that? Because the minimum salaries is where teams can skirt the system. We've seen the exploitation of minor leaguers, but the minimum salaries of major leaguers is a way for teams to avoid having to pay more money when they're tanking. You can tank now, and 
we've seen that the word tank in baseball isn't as common as it is in basketball, but look at what the Astros did. They were bringing in a 0.0 television rating. Their attendance was terrible for so long, and they made no effort to really make the major league team even halfway decent at the time. And that's because you don't have to spend much money to have a quote-unquote major league team because the minimum salaries are not rising with the revenues. While the Astros did do a great job of rebuilding and in the meantime using those draft picks to acquire or pick up really good young talent and made some good trades, I'm not taking that away from them, the point is that there's no disincentive from tanking. In fact, being mediocre is the worst thing that you can do in baseball because you'll actually lose money. If you sign a veteran, you stand to lose a draft pick if they qualify for one of those compensation picks. As long as you essentially break even as a baseball team, you will profit thanks to the revenue sharing system that was supposed to even the playing field, but it actually does the exact opposite because it incentivizes teams to do absolutely nothing. And how long did we see that with the Marlins before this ownership? Yes, the Marlins won that World Series in 2003, and it was amazing, not going to take anything away from that, but it wasn't as a result of actually spending any money. The Marlins picked up Pudge Rodriguez on a one-year deal as a smokescreen of, hey, look, we're trying to win. But otherwise, they didn't spend any money, and they relied on the minimum salaries. They pulled out a World Series in 03, but then we saw the same thing year after year of the Marlins just banking on the fact that revenue will continue to grow. Teams will continue to appreciate, even if you are the smallest market of teams, whether it's the Rays, the Marlins, whatever it may be, those teams will still appreciate, just like a mutual fund will, at about... 5 to 8% a year, let's say, maybe a little bit less than a good mutual fund, but you can take it to the bank that is going to appreciate. So as long as you break even, your team's going to appreciate and you're going to get a cut of the league revenue pool. So as long as the minimum salaries don't increase as fast as the revenue does, you're actually increasing your margins of profit if you're planning on having the smallest payroll possible. And that's why you can see players get frustrated by this, and that's why the middle-class free agent is getting ostracized. That's why we're seeing so many free agents, quality players, not be signed into the start of seasons because either teams that are really good don't want to pay for a mediocre player or have a better option, and then the teams that are cheap or that are some of the small market teams that don't want to have a payroll above the bare minimum have no gain in signing a veteran, potentially giving up a draft pick, and being on the hook for money when there's no reason to really do it unless you feel that your team is young, talented, cheap, and one piece away from being competitive. But how rare is that? That's the thing that we are seeing in baseball right now, and that's why it's refreshing that the Marlins, at least this past year, spent money on guys like Corey Dickerson. Go get Jonathan VR. That's the difference with this ownership. And that's why baseball needs more ownerships like the Marlins have right now. I'm not saying they're perfect. They obviously traded away a lot of good players as part of the rebuild, and that's a whole entirely different story. But at least they're spending money on those middle-class free agents that a lot of other teams just ignore. The middle class is gone in baseball. It really is. And that's why you see so many quality free agents just sitting unsigned just about every single year. 
While the minimum salary player, or of course minor leaguers who are exploited the most, and I could do an entire podcast just on that and their lack of salary, they've suffered the most and they're the most vulnerable. But let me tell you why Rob Manfred's quest to become commissioner of Major League Baseball came at the expense of all Major League Baseball players. Rob Manfred, as I said earlier, was the outside counsel. He served as the outside counsel for the owners in 1994 during the strike and during that CBA dispute. He gains more responsibility inside Major League Baseball and is in charge of CBA negotiations in 2002, 2006, and 2011 before becoming commissioner in 2015. According to Fangraphs, in 2002, revenue percentage going towards player salaries peaked at 56%. After 2002, it steadily dropped to 38%, this is per fan graphs, in 2015 when Manfred took over. That was after three CBAs that Manfred had negotiated. Why would Manfred want to take money out of the hands of players and put it into the hands of owners during those three CBAs, it makes sense because Rob Manfred probably had his eyes on becoming commissioner of Major League Baseball. And how do you become commissioner of Major League Baseball? The owners vote you in. And how do you get the owners to vote you in? You maximize their profits. It's all billionaires. They know one language and it's money. And Manfred was able to show them, hey, I'm a hell of an attorney. And there's no disputing that Rob Manfred is a hell of an attorney. That's why we are where we are right now. And this has been a long time coming because Rob Manfred's effort to win over the owners has come at the expense of players, and they are all seeing it now. And nobody wants to deal with Rob Manfred anymore. And how can you blame the players? You look at every decision that Rob Manfred has made in his tenure as the commissioner And he has never made a player-friendly decision. Everything that he wants to do is at the expense of players. And just think about it. He wants to cut minor league teams. He wanted to cut the draft to 20 rounds. He sided with the owners in the union dispute that I mentioned earlier in regards to teams using the revenue share to actually sign free agents and make their team better. And he sided with the owners in the dispute over Chris Bryant's service time manipulation. If you don't remember what that was, that was when the Cubs sent Chris Bryant to the minor leagues when he was more than ready to be in the majors to quote-unquote work on defense. By starting Bryant in the minor leagues for X amount of the beginning of the season, they delay his clock, which means that he is one year later eligible for arbitration, one year later eligible for free agency, and it's one less year of Chris Bryant making the money that he deserves. And guess what? Minimum salaries, like I said earlier and have said time and time again in this podcast, are not increasing at the rate of revenue, which is why it makes sense for these teams to delay the service time clock. But perhaps the most frustrating part of all of this right now if we're going to go right into the situation now and stop looking at the past and see how we're going to actually play baseball this year, because nothing that Rob Manfred says right now is going to actually make me feel more or less confident about a season. Let's look at it this way. And I never thought I'd quote Scott Boris before, but he hit the nail on the head in regards to how the owners are handling this. 
You don't privatize the gains and socialize the losses. That's what Scott Boris said. And that's exactly what these owners are doing. They're crying poor and saying, we are going to lose $640,000 a game is what they allege in a leaked document that was most likely intentionally leaked by someone within the owner's realm. Those, those are intentional leaks because they'll leak that, but then you can't find out what their actual revenue is. You can only take a guess at how much these owners are actually bringing in beyond just having butts in the seats. While that does account for a huge portion of revenue, I'm not going to lie or pretend that that's not the case. It's about 30 to 40 percent. Let's say let's be generous and say 40 percent. We saw the one billion dollar deal with Turner Sports that obviously is going to line the pockets of all of the owners. But there is a myriad of revenue streams for these teams that they don't want to reveal because it would show that money is not an issue for them in this season. MLB Advanced Media, that is basically the department that's in charge of everything from MLB.com, MILB.com, which is the minor league websites, MLB.tv, Game Day Audio, and even RBI Baseball. I've never played that game, but RBI Baseball is a video game that is the only sports game owned by the professional league that the game is for. So Major League Baseball is the only sport that owns the rights to a game of its own sport. While I don't think RBI Baseball is flying off the shelves, that's some sort of source of income. And the MLBAM, which is the MLB Advanced Media, brings in almost $1 billion per year as well. So right there, that's $2 billion between MLB with the deal with Turner Sports and MLB Advanced Media. And that's not even factoring in local television deals and all of the other revenue streams that these teams have. The funny thing about it is that the owners will not reveal how much money they bring in from MLB Advanced Media. That's hilarious to me because they want the players to share in the risk of potentially losing money on each game without knowing how much revenue they get from other areas. Also, who's taking the risk by playing the games? The owners sit on their couch in their mansions and watch the ball game, right? What do the players do? They're the ones that have to either be isolated from their families. They're the ones that have to risk contracting the virus and locate wherever the heck we're going to play these games. We haven't even gotten into the logistics with this second wave of infections that we're seeing. We can't even get to the logistics of how we're going to play this season because we're still hung up on the dollars. And that's the thing is the players are taking the risk, the actual life risk. And all the owners are thinking about is the financial risk. But how much financial risk is there? You won't say how much you make from MLB AM. They don't even consider the fact that the NHL actually paid a $600 million lifetime deal to MLB to run their digital services through MLB AM. MLB AM set the standard for how teams should use the internet and how leagues, rather, should use the internet and profit off of digital services. NHL was behind, so they signed a $600 million deal with Major League Baseball. I don't know the duration of the contract, but the fact that the NHL, which is a much smaller and less profitable league than Major League Baseball, is willing to pay that much money for whatever the duration of the contract is for MLB to 
oversee its digital services can only make you imagine how much MLB brings in from all of those aforementioned digital services. It's like President Trump saying he's a billionaire, but he won't show his tax returns. If you are a billionaire, what do you have to hide? Why don't you want to show your tax returns? If the owners are crying poor, why are you strategically leaking documents? Why are you not willing to show how you're actually going to lose money? Prove to me that you're going to lose $640,000 a game, which is just ridiculous. But you know what? I'm willing to listen, but you're not talking. That's all you're saying, the owners. That's it. I'm going to lose this money, but I won't show you how. Just believe me, you got to take my word for it. The players, you got to take this risk with us because we're going to lose money, but I, we won't show you. We're, you just got to believe us. I don't think so. And that's why we are where we are now. And I'm going to close on one thing about Rob Manfred. I talked about how he's not a baseball guy. He never was a baseball guy. It's pretty clear that Rob Manfred is not a baseball guy. I think that's indisputable at this point. That would be okay if it didn't result in the sport bleeding from the decisions that he makes. He has been more hellbent on cutting the duration of a game down by four minutes than actually playing a season this year. If he cared a fraction of as much about a season happening this year as he did pace of play rules, we might be in a better position right now. How about catering to the fans that you actually have that you might lose rather than trying to go and get a fan that doesn't exist? Do you really think that there's a person out there that said, wow, if baseball was five minutes and 25 seconds shorter, I would totally love that sport. I'd watch all of the games. It doesn't exist. But who you are alienating are the people that like multiple sports. Maybe football, basketball is their favorite sport, but they enjoy baseball. Why would you have the patience for this if you prefer basketball or football? I would be done. I wouldn't have any interest in baseball if I were one of those casual baseball fans. But instead, Rob Manfred wants to focus on the people that don't exist rather than the fans he already has. You're going to lose them. You're going to kill this game. And for the owners, your short-sighted greed is illogical. You all were alive in 1994. You saw what happened to Major League Baseball after the strike. A 20% decrease in attendance the following year. A ton of people just pledging baseball away. And it took five plus years to regain those losses in terms of attendance and television ratings. But I thought losing people in the seats was detrimental devastating to the owners. If that's the case, why are you willing to sit out a season when you know it will have lasting effects on your attendance? It seems counterintuitive. The short-sighted greed is breeding lack of logic and just lack of care for the sport in itself. I'm going to close with one thing that I found from the Morgan Lewis website, which is the law firm that Rob Manford previously worked at. He was interviewed for an alumni spotlight newsletter and in the end, he was asked, do you like to play baseball? You know, do you ever go out and swing the bat? Honestly, said Rob, I was one of the worst little leaguers of all time. I wasn't very good. In his downtime, Rob spends time with his wife, Colleen, and their four children. He enjoys golf and has made two holes in one. I also like to go to the ballpark sometimes, he said. Yeah, the commissioner of baseball also likes to go to the ballpark sometimes. That's great to know. Good for you, Rob Manfred. What would be a more impressive feat to me than your alleged hole-in-one, or two, so you say, would be a baseball season. So Rob, give the people what they want. 
How many kids are just going to be sitting at home wishing that they could be watching baseball and their parents are going to have to explain to them that it's because of greed, because of money, because of ineptitude that they can't watch their favorite players play their favorite game?